Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nabe. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com if you're interested in any of Walter's music. And Davine Dial, hats off to you for managing the the station WPVM FM and if you are interested in finding out more about what Davine does at WPVM FM the website is WPVMFM.org you can learn all about community radio right there and if you would like to join me any Saturday morning at 10 o'clock mountain time and noon eastern time for an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session which i host with my creative collaborator Allegra Houston we gather for an hour on zoom and write, write, write from a 10-minute prompt or write from a prompt and we create 10 minutes worth of written work and then we read it aloud. It's fun. We call it a salon. We call it a writing gathering. We call it whatever anybody wants to call it. We're glad people are there. And if you'd like to find out more about that and join us anytime on Saturday, uh, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to to do that. And my email is nave at jamesnave.com. So I would love to hear from you. So today, if you have been listening to this show in the past, you know, sometimes I have folks on that I know well and some I've just met. Today, I have um, a poet with us. His name is Robert McDowell. Robert and I have never met. This is the first time we've come face to face and it's on Zoom where I'm doing this interview. I do know Robert's work. He has a terrific website. He has been in the poetry community for years. He would be what we would call an influencer. People pay attention to what Robert says about poetry and what he writes about poetry. So I thought, why not have Robert on the show? Oh, since we do have the theme of the spoken word and literary arts and other things for this show. So Robert, I would like for you to start by just talking about how you draw on all of the vast experience you have as a poet and as a writer to address some of these modern cultural dilemmas that we have. Is it worth addressing them head on? Should we come at it from a, a more nuanced point of view? What's your take on that and how do you do it? Uh, it changes week to week. In the last say five years to 10 years, I have felt increasingly uh, under assault. And I realize I'm no more under assault than I was 50 years ago. But the difference is I'm more tuned into it and tuned into all of the factors that go into creating that feeling, which frankly has me on a fence. Half the time I'm thinking, I've got to get out of here. I've got to leave the United States. The latest case of that, of course, was when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade like millions of Americans and millions of people around the world, appalled that we would take that giant step backwards. The moment where you feel like there's got to be a better way, there has to be a better place to live than this. Why are we, why am I tormenting myself with this? But then one swings back because I was born here. This is my country. So I have a responsibility to try to make it a better place than it was when I got here. 
The older one gets, the more vulnerable one feels. It's a frightening thought when I envision a country that I'm leaving my kids, who are all adults now, but they're young adults. The party they inherited, the party they moved into, like it's not so fun. Where are all those bells and whistles I heard about when I was a kid? I mean, I, you know, I hear them say that. The challenges facing them are terrifying. More and more, the United States is a nation of very rich people in charge of a service industry, which is what the rest of us to them are. Fix my car, get me a table, bring me my meal, mend my clothes, take care of the garden. Yeah. Where, where does the poet fit into this service industry? Is the poet outside looking in? Is the poet doing the gardening work? Maybe the poet is do, maybe the poets are doing all of that. My mentor who died 10 years ago, George Hitchcock, the poet, playwright and actor and editor of Kayak magazine and Kayak book. In the 50s, he was called before the House on American Activities. Uh, for his communist sympathies. And when he was asked, uh, you know, what is your profession? He gave a response that made an evening news nationwide that night. And the response was, I work underground with plants. I'm a landscape gardener. <laughs> that was, now that was the poet's perfect answer to that. I'm just thinking of Emily Dickinson. For me, the greatest American poet ever. She has that wonderful little poem, Tell All the Truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. Like lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, so truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That's a very effective strategy. And it's also a spiritual strategy, which poetry lends itself to perfectly. If you can truly come in sideways and get into the skin of somebody wearing a red hat, you can't convince that person by sheer argument that they're wrong and you're right. But suppose if you could befriend that person, if you could love that person, his mother loved him, in her eyes, he was perfect. Seeing that person like that, it changes things a lot. There's more room for thought, I like to think. That sort of thing, as you know, can be applied to teaching. You've taught everywhere, virtually every kind of person. But I have had the opportunity to interact with a fairly wide range of, of people, many of whom are quite devoted to the word, to poetry. They've thrown themselves into the intellectual pursuit of it. Opposite end, I've worked with people that have just kind of walked in out of nowhere and said, gee, what's this about? Tell me more. And the range right. between the committed, devoted, poetic people and the walk through the door, tell me more, is vast. And yet the seed is there. The seed of curiosity lies within both the person who walks through the door and the more advanced person. And I think if we have something in common, we have that seed of curiosity in common. And then, of course, what do we do with it? And you mentioned Emily Dickinson, and I always have performed a poem by Emily Dickinson. And the reason I know it is because it's in the 
elementary school textbooks, but it's, it goes, it's, it's, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Shh, don't tell. They would banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name the livelong day to an admiring bog. And I'm beginning to think the essence of that poem, I'm nobody, it's an aspirational piece because the person saying I'm nobody, are they saying I want to be somebody? Are they saying I want to be accepted? It's, it's a way of focusing what might be confusion around the nobody-ness of life and becoming who you are. And that may be what is driving people in the culture right now. You know, the people who are wearing their red hats, they're saying, I'm nobody. And who are you? You have a red hat right. too. Can we get together and, and maybe we will have something important. Now I may disagree with that. Right. And in fact, I do, I'm not in that camp at all. And yet I understand the motivation that somebody, two people would have coming together. Oh, now we have embraced. Now we have something we can understand. So back to Emily Dickinson, I'm nobody. Right. Who are you? Who are you? That's the question, right. of course, that all poets ask. It's an aggressive strategy she has, really, feigned humility. I'm nobody to begin that poem. It's aggressive because then she says, who are you? She's not going to stop and wallow in her nobodiness, her nobodyhood. She immediately shifts right to the other person, which she always does, actually. Most consistently, she wrestled with God. I don't think she lost. She won. I mean, of course, I have to ask, Robert, how do you win or lose when you wrestle with God? Isn't it just a, a wallowing in divinity and somehow you come out with more than you went in? Maybe when you wrestle with God, you're wrestling as much with yourself, of course, aren't we? In her case, for example, wrestling with all of the received doctrine of a very mm -hmm. constricted life. We're trained to be combative, aggressive. Uh, I'm thinking of Americans especially right now, because that's what I know best. I mean, I've spent a great deal of time in Ireland, and I don't find the Irish that way at all. They may be obstreperous and argumentative, but for a totally different reason. They're much more content to be arguing about magic and wizardry and folklore than just the, the kind of stuff that we fight about, the red hats seeking a common ground with other red hats. I mean, clearly, these are people who have felt disenfranchised ignored and pushed her to the side. They're right. This is the funny thing, though. They do have a tendency to uh, become very supportive of the very people who have done that to them. Well, American culture is aggressive. No question about it. We go to work. We work 40 hours a week. We are told to build a better life. We are told to acquire more things. We are told to toe the line, conform, behave ourselves, while at the same time we're told to be entrepreneurial, creative, dynamic, and try to make our million dollars. We're told to pull ourselves up by our right. bootstraps and go forward into the wilderness. And at the same time, we're told, don't right. get too far out of line. That kind of double messaging it will confuse 
anybody, whereas the Irish, and I can't speak that much for the Irish. I've been to Ireland maybe eight, nine times over the last of my, of my lifetime. I've been there enough to know that they do enjoy arguing about how many leprechauns are at the gate down by the path. And they know that they're having fun doing it. You know, which leprechaun yeah. has the biggest smoke ring above its head or whatever. The Irish people don't seem to be particularly driven by the aggressive commercial nature that Americans are driven by. Now, we do know in Ireland there have been plenty of times when the conflicts rose up and the Irish did fight it out and have fought it out. So it's not like the Irish don't have the wherewithal to stand their ground beside the gate with all those leprechauns if needed. Yeah. But yeah. that's not their that's not their nature. But here in this country, we do have the conditioning to dig in and somehow to fight. America is armed to the teeth. I mean, I, I know most of my friends have at least one gun somewhere, uh, if not a pistol in the glove compartment or the bread basket, yeah. they have a shotgun leaning against the door. And it's it's commonplace. And so we are in a culture that that requires us to make peace with aggression. That's a hard thing to do. I'm nobody. <laughs> Who are you? The Irish have both the blessing and the curse. You know, they're an island nation, an island culture, which is very different from anything we have here, for example. But they were also oppressed, overrun. They were invaded, subjugated. In America, we reversed that completely. We did it. We did the subjugating. We committed the genocide. We built a country on the backs of slaves. It's a dark double stain on our culture's soul, our spirit. And I think that's why this is all so hard. Well, when you build a country, which we've done on years of conquest on multiple levels, starting 1492, when supposedly Columbus hit the shore of, an, of a dramatically well-populated country claiming nobody was here, that's where it starts. 1492, well, let's just say the beginning of the 1500s, for 400 years, you have a group of people expanding, expanding, expanding at the expense of those around them, you're going to naturally have all of those experiences built into our infrastructure thinking. So when are we going to get right, over it? Right. You know, maybe another couple of hundred years to get over the 400-year expansion that we all participated in. And I mean, back to the Irish, um, um, Michael Ventura wrote an essay called Hear That Long Black Snake Moan. And it's an essay about the emergence of American music by way of New Orleans back in the days of slavery and, and afterwards as well. During slave times, the folks would have some free time to come away from the farms and gather in these squares in New Orleans, and they would dance and sing and socialize on Saturday night, right? In those times, a lot of American music was developed, and Michael Ventura says that one of the reasons that music has had so much potency as it came up the Mississippi in juke joints and churches and other venues 
and the blues, the jazz, the, the rhythms. It was because the slave trade came through Haiti to New Orleans, or much of it did. And the, the Irish people, many were sold into slavery and shipped down to Haiti along with the people from Africa. And according to him, Right. The argument that he makes is, well, you know, you take all that Irish mysticism, mix it with all the African mysticism, the spiritual thinking of those groups. You put them together in Haiti, ship it over to Congo Square in New Orleans, and you're going to have some really dramatic stuff happen in the music world, which it did. And as the music evolved, people like Elvis discovered it and took it into the white culture. And Janis Joplin did the same thing. Jerry Lee Lewis did the same thing and many others. But it all started with with Muddy Waters and some of these blues musicians singing of the troubles that they had had. But there was some Irish mixed in with that, too. Those are the field reports, whereas the right. more official ones in the government agencies, they, they weren't in the field enjoying right. themselves with the folks leaning at the gate, talking to the leprechauns, so to speak. You know, it's an always open question for me. Is the only way to, to make that kind of beautiful, gorgeous creation and discovery, is the only way to do that through tremendous suffering and pain? Probably not. Their collaboration is very much about survival. With so little to cling to. We're talking about 400 years of systematic commerce around humanity, plus all the other systematic commerce we've employed to create what we have now. Systemic aggression, systemic racism built into the systems we have that administer our lives today. How could it not be built in? On a more positive note, There's systemic empathy built in as well. There is systemic intelligence, positive intelligence built in. Systemic love is built in. Systemic aspiration is built in, in the best sense of where can we take our our souls. I mean, Krista Tippett, the On Being Project is a good example of systemic aspiration in the most positive way. That's what her system is built upon. Yes, there's systemic racism built into our culture, and it is in there, and it is embedded in our DNA in ways that we will probably be trying to understand for the next 200, 300 years, I suspect. Will we ever figure it out? We may not. Will we be able to accommodate some of the more systemic, humane ways of thinking that will counterbalance some of the horrors that exist in our systems? I I would like to think so. I don't know if we have that in us. Maybe we do. I'm thinking with the advent of travel, with the advent of the internet, you and I are having a conversation now. We wouldn't have been able to do this 15 years ago because we didn't have this, these kind of systems. Maybe there's something emerging we don't see. Maybe the people can come together in ways now that they would never be able to. I mean, certainly on Zoom, you can invite the whole world to join you on a screen for an hour. And if somebody decides to show up, you can have a lot of diversity on a screen, much more so than in person. 
because it's just easier. I think Dickinson's entire work is a positive statement, ongoing positive statement against all odds. Whitman, much the same way. Ultimately, it's love, love, love and overcoming differences. I remember a poem that I performed for the school students when I was traveling around. I memorized all these poems because they were in the school textbook. So naturally, I'm going to be yep. able to draw I'm nobody out. But one of the ones I thought significant was Whitman's piece on on the child going forth. And he opens it. There was a child went forth every day. And the first object that child looked upon, that child became. And that object became part of that child for the day or a part of the day or for many years or for stretching cycles of years. And the sentiment there is whatever we look upon, we become part of it and it becomes part of us. And I Whitman closes by saying, and the child goes forth every day, always implying that we are always the child going forth even the la on the last day of our lives, if we're 97 or 103, that last life, that last breath, that's the child going forth, becoming part of whatever the child touches. I'm nobody, who are you? I am the child that went forth every day and touched everything. And the answer to that, who are you? I think the most appropriate answer is I am myself. That's a good marriage right there. You bring Whitman and Dickinson together. I don't know. I'm going to have a poem. May I read one? I would love yeah. it. This is an odd poem. Well, I'm not going to say much more about it. I'm just going to read it and be interested in your take on it. It's called Gang of Chimps. It's chimpanzees. Gang of Chimps. I disappeared for two months and ran wild with a gang of chimps. My agility and hirsute appearance when undressed made my assimilation easier than I ever imagined. I thought I'd have to fight my way in to the chimp inner circle, but no. The chimp jury was divided and a couple had the hots for me. I was watched and I was reckless and I discovered unexpected pleasure in walking on my knuckles from time to time. I pursued the chimp gang life because I lacked a mentor. And gang life is self-medication for the lack of one. We patrolled the borders of our land every day, marching menacingly in single file, eight to 10 of us in a squad. Except for the occasional inter-gang tussle, I saw little action, except for one night when a gang of bonobos crossed our boundary. I guess some of their females wanted a potluck dinner and what a coup to show up with fresh chimp meat. The day they attacked, I should have died, but my gang brothers saved me. About the treacherous bonobos, I was ignorant. I knew nothing about their habit of greeting a stranger with sex. So when a handsome bonobo showed up beside me in line and made lewd advances, we were all bisexual. I thought, why not? He had a winning urgency and confidence about him. And I was happy to let him lead me into the bush where he and his pals 
as soon as we were out of sight, would have torn me to pieces. But as we veered out of line, hand in hand, the jungle shook from chimp gang warfare. No matter how much I desired my foe's suitor, true to my colors, I had no problem turning on him with murderous intent. I'd taped a box cutter to my inner thigh. For occasions just like this, and I used it with more than enough skill to negate my enemy's superior strength. All I had to do was dive to the ground and slash his leg tendons, rendering him immobile and easy to kill. Well, that little business did away with the last reservations that some of the chimps harbored about me. I was in deep with my chimp gang and even had my pick of a little den of females that regarded me with new respect and desire after hearing all about my fighting ability. If human women secretly love a murderer, chimp girls put it all out there. They want a warrior and a winner. Strike first and strike often. That's what chimps, male and female, always say. Of course, I've had to be careful coming back to humans not everything I learned in my chimp gang is useful among these hairless primates. I'm not always successful remembering that I'm one of them, especially in dreams. I travel far in my jungle dreams, back to my roaming place in line, ready to kill at the drop of a leaf. I dream of the female whose heart I broke, the family I might have had, and often I wake up in a rage, chattering, like a bloodthirsty ape. It's not attractive, and it could be dangerous, I know. But it's who I am now. I'm thinking of the story of the World War II soldiers on Christmas Eve, face-to-face -face in the trenches. And they, somebody somewhere starts to sing a Christmas hymn, and they all put their guns down, the Germans and the Americans, or the Germans and the French, English, I don't know who was there, but the Germans on one side and the, and the um, Americans and the English and the French on the other. And they all danced together. And they had Christmas Eve. And they toasted each other. And the next morning, yeah. they went back to it. And so I was thinking of that when you were reading the piece. And the other thing that I am intrigued by regarding the approach you took you're talking about things that are uncomfortable. That point made me a little uncomfortable. Yes. I'm like, hmm, you know, yes. gang warfare. Hmm, you know, am I an ape? Am I a chimpanzee? Am I a bonobo? I think it's bonobo, right? And then I loved it when you allowed the dream state to come in. This is a dream. Mm -hmm. Or is it? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Because in my dreams, I have a lot of unfiltered opportunities to view life, shall we say. And my dreams yeah. are not controlled by my public persona, by what I should be. They have their own way of doing things. And that was what I found most intriguing about that poem. Because there were a lot of things in it that 
maybe I wouldn't say at a party, you know, and you were willing to just, okay, lay this out in the text and then read it right. to us in public. That requires a bit of poetic skill to do such a thing and take somewhat of an emotion, well, emotional risk, but also uh, a risk of being judged in many different ways on that piece. That's a very generous response to the poem. It is uncomfortable and, and it's uncomfortable for me to read it. I was uncomfortable reading it. I'm always uncomfortable just thinking about that poem because I know a lot of the hot button, it's full of hot button moments where you just, you know, you could hear yourself and others say, you can't say that. You can't exactly. say that. Mm -hmm. You, you yeah. can't go there. And I decided I was going to go everywhere. I was going to do it. You know, I'm going to do it all and put it there, not judge it and allow a reader well, like you to, to have the experience of what the poem triggered in you could be very different for someone else. And, you know, oddly, I mean, I've worked with more gang members in my life than I have with platoon members, that it could have been a platoon. It could have been any kind of club acquiring membership. Take Hell's Angels. I've read a fair amount about the yes. Hell's Angels group. And in order to get in that group as a member of that gang, you have to go through some dramatically rigorous requirements. You have to have ridden with them a certain length yes. of time. You have to agree to wear the brand in a certain way. You have to be invited to come in. You can't just knock on the door and be invited in. You have to be invited. Once you're in, you swear to stay in for the rest of your life. And there you have punishments when you're yeah. not following the rules, you couldn't be more rule bound. It defines gang. And I'm thinking of when you were writing that Hunter Thompson coined the idea of gonzo journalism. And of course, gonzo journalism runs counter to traditional journalism. The traditional journalist is removed a distance. They just report the facts right. and that's it. You know, the motorcycle leaned against the wall and yep. it was on the corner of sixth and eighth. It was a Harley. It had 23,000 miles on the odometer journalism. Gonzo journalism was, uh, I kicked the Harley. I loved kicking it. Then I got in a fight with the guy that owned the Harley. He cut my ear off and I didn't like it. And I'm going to get revenge because the guy cut my ear off because I kicked the Harley over. Which means you are completely <laughs> yeah. reporting from the inside. It's very subjective. And so you were doing yeah. a fantasy version of gonzo journalism by saying, I have now signed up to be part of the, the, the chimpanzee gang. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and uh, it, it, the, that last line, it's who I am now. I mean, it's, that, that could apply any, to anything, to anywhere. Back um, to a child went forth every day, the first object they looked upon. This is who right, I am today. Exactly. Right now, I know who I am. <laughs> In five minutes, I may not have any clue who I am. I come out of the dream and I, you know, put on a suit and I go to work. Four hours later, who am I? Well, in some ways, who we are, we were the moment we were born. As my mother said to me years ago, she said, all I want you to do is be yourself. 
very easy brief, be yourself, very difficult to achieve because sometimes we get confused around who we are, back to the people with the red hats or back to the Hells Angels or uh, the chimpanzee gang or whatever it is. We are looking for some kind of identity. And the who am I identity is I am myself is right there for us to always have. And yet it's difficult to to seize upon because of all the other cultural variables around. And yet I I am a part of all that I have met. You know, a child went forth every day and the first object that child looked upon, that object he became. So if we could somehow understand that in one way we are always the same i am who i was when i was born this is me i am also ever changing this conversation has changed the way i look at things water i drink changes the way i exist so i am eternally me within the context of perhaps eternity but certainly within the context of my life but I'm ever changing at the same time. And if you don't know that, and if you don't stop for a moment to embrace that beautiful notion, this is a birthright. You were you when you were born. You can get confused. You can become aggressive. You can blow up at the red light and start blasting away at somebody you don't know, or you can go off in many, many directions because Maybe you forget who you are and right. you're trying to become something right. else. I, I don't know. Speculation here. Speculation. You said early on, you, you mentioned early on, a key ingredient, of course, we share is curiosity. And and that leads to infinite speculation. What is going on here? I think that's, you know, like like everyone else, we want to feel safe. You know, I want to be at a place where I feel safe. I want to be at a place where I feel good, not a place where I feel unsafe or threatened and I hurt. Who wants that? But it all begins right here inside, you know. Um, that's why I wrote a book called Poetry and Spiritual Practice, because I really believe that, you know, when you marry the word to the search, you're well along the way to getting wherever you need to go, which is right where you're at. You're right where you're sitting. <laughs> well, and, and poetry as a spiritual practice is certainly a valid idea because how can you contemplate the world poetically without coming across a little bit of beauty, without bumping into all yeah. of the elements that make us human, the good, the bad? Jack Myers, a poet that I worked with when I went to Vermont College and got an MFA from Vermont College. I asked Jack, I said, well, how do you write poetry, Jack? He said, well, you know, it's really easy. You just crawl around in the swamp of your psychology till you find something and you write about it. No big deal. On one level, no big deal. What he means is you don't have to crawl around much in the swamp of your psychology. There's plenty there. Just pick whatever you want and go forth. It has to be spiritual because it connects you to your own spirit. And if your spirit is not connected to the universe, then where is it connected? William Stafford's practice was to write a poem a day. And it was his way of doing the work, which he talked about, doing the work. Do the work, and you would arrive at this place every day where you knew what you were doing, you knew who you were, you knew what you had just done. It was an awareness practice. 
-hmm. to him, writing poetry was an awareness practice. I, I believe part of that came from his incarceration period during World War II when he was a CO, locked up to do menial tasks. I like to think of poetry as an awareness practice. When I'm working on a poem, revising a poem, I am never more content and happier than I am at that moment. There is a significant shift when I'm finished, you know, when I know I'm not going to do any more with a poem. Except maybe, maybe read it occasionally, but I'm not going to work on that poem anymore. So I love that rush at the end. You hit that moment, and it takes a while to get there. But when you hit that moment, you feel fantastic. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and for those people listening, poets like William Stafford or anybody who writes poetry, we end up writing a great deal. And if you look at your days as a poet, you probably could say you certainly write every day. I know some people like Rosemary Watola Traumer, she writes a poem a day and she comes out with an actual line broken bit of verse that she puts on her blog or her website and off she goes. So she's been doing that yeah. for years as well. It is a different mindset when you sit down to say poem, make a poem here, not just write in my journal. That's for sure. The work that is being done, when you work on a poem, yes, it's work, but it doesn't feel like work, or, or it feels like delicious work, tasty work, yum work. You know, I also know people who write poems, but that they only write when they're inspired. They say to me, why are you putting down all that trivial every day? It's part of going up the ladder. It's part of making progress towards an awareness moment. I'll know when I get there. Like Yeats said, when the poem is right, it closes with a click of the lid of a perfectly made box. I feel and I hear that click in my head. Emily Dickinson, how do I know it's poetry when, you know, when I feel like the top of my head's blown off? Well, you know, Robert, we are going to be asking that question for a long, long time. How do we know it's poetry? But we have arrived at the top of our time together. And how do we connect with you if somebody wants to work with you? The best way is just to go to my website, robertmcdowell.net. I hope to hear from people. Robert, thank you so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really, really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be with us. Thank you, James. Uh, it was a wonderful experience, and uh, I'm very grateful to be your guest for an hour. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Robert McDowell. I've always been curious about connecting with Robert, so now I have, and I look forward to another beat somewhere down the line. If you've been listening to this show, and I hope you have, you probably have figured out the conversations you hear are more just that, conversations. I never know what question I'll ask next or in what direction the, the conversation will go in. And that's what's so delightful about doing these shows like with Robert. And I was really appreciative when he kept bringing up Emily Dickinson. Anytime anybody brings up Emily Dickinson, I always quote the little poem, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? I like that poem because right now, more than ever, we're in a situation in the world, certainly in America, where we're constantly looking for identity. Who are you? That's as good a question as anybody can ask, and I guess we have our entire lives to figure out the answer to that question, and of course there are probably many answers to the question, even though I have to say I feel similar to how I felt when I was 12 years old. Who I am feels the same. 
I remember walking down Brevard Road back when Brevard Road was a two-lane, long before the commerce came along and widened the road and installed the interstate and put the car dealerships in on the side where I used to play in the forest, Brevard Road, just outside of Asheville. I walked down the road and I remember I was headed to Sardis Church and I knew who I was and it wasn't a profound knowing it wasn't like I know who I am it was more like I know I am alive and right now this is the perfect moment walking down this road on a sunny warm afternoon headed to the Methodist youth fellowship program that the church held every Sunday evening. I knew who I was then and I know who I am now. So much of us figuring this out has to do with geography, the way our stories stretch across our memories, the way the landscape unfolds in front of us as we take a right or take a left or drive north over the mountain or down south into the flatlands. And even though I'll tell you I know who I am right now, does that stop me from exploring, making inquiries, asking questions, looking around the corner to see what's next? Of course not. I will be who I am when I look around that corner, although by looking around the corner, the act of movement, the act of transitioning from one landscape to the next, interior inside your head or exterior across the land, it changes you looking around the next corner. You're really not the same person, even though you may be who you were, who you are, and who you will be when you turn that corner. I'm reminded of a poem that I've always loved written by Charles Wright. It's titled Lonesome Pines Special, and it's all about landscapes and how the landscapes of our psychologies, the landscapes of our travel, form us. I would like to offer you a few lines of that as a way of giving you a sense of how a poet can collect the essence of those thoughts I had walking down Brevard Road when I was young, or the essence of what you might feel when you turn the corner and you make a discovery and you see something new, or you have a new thought. So here's a few lines from Charles Wright's poem, which is a longer poem titled Lonesome Pine Special. So maybe you'll recognize the reference to a location that's not too far from Asheville. Here we go. In the world of dirt, each tactile thing repeats the untouchable in its own way and in its own time. Just short of Tryon, North Carolina on US 176 going south down the old Saluda grade Kudzu has grown up, and over the tops of miles of oak trees and pine trees, a wall of vines a hundred feet high, or used to be, into South Carolina, that would have gone for a hundred more with the right scaffolding, rising out of the rock and hard clay and thin prickly ropes to snake and thread in daily measurable distances over anything, still enough, long enough. 
and working its way out of the darkness and overhang of its own coils to break again and again into sunlight, worthless and everywhere, breathing, breathing, looking for leverage and a place to climb. It's true, I think, as Kinko says in his idleness, that all beauty begins upon disappearance, the bitten edges of things, the gradual sliding away into tissue and memory, the uncertainty and dazzling impermanence of days we beg our meanings from and their frayed loveliness. Going west out of Kalispell, Montana on US 2, if you turn at Kila and skirted the big slough where Dogie Duncan killed three men some 70 years ago after a fight over muskrat hides, then turn south toward the timber and higher ground on the dirt road to the Flathead Mine, past Sandelius' homestead and up toward Brown's Meadows, then swung down where the mine road branches right and doubles back, you'd come through the thinning spruce and fir and lodgepole pine to the suddenly open hillsides and deep draws of the hog heaven country and start to see what I mean. The bunch grass and bitterroot and wild clover flattening under the wind as you turn from the dirt road, open the Kansas gate and begin to follow with great care. The overgrown wagon runs through the blowing field, the huge tamarack snag where the tracks end and the cabin is, black in the sunlight's washing flow, just under the hill's crown, pulling you down like weight to the front door. The cabin is still sizable, four rooms and walls made of plain lumber inside, the outside chinked with mud and cement, everything 50 years past habitation, the whole structure leaning into the hillside, windowless, doorless, and oddly beautiful in its desolation and attitude, and not like the cold and isolate misery it must have stood for when someone lived here and heard at night the same wind sluicing the jack pines and ruined apple trees in the orchard, and felt the immensity loneliness brings moving under his skin like a live thing and emptiness everywhere like a live thing beyond the window's reach and the fire's glare. Whoever remembers that best owns all this now, and after him it belongs to the wind again and the shivering bunch grass and the seed cones. There is so little to say and so much time to say it in. Once in 1955, on an icy road in Sam's Gap, North Carolina, going north into Tennessee on US-23, I spun out on a slick patch, and the car turned once and a half around, stopping at last with one front wheel on a rock and the other on air. Hundreds of feet of air down the mountainside I backed away from, mortal again after having left myself and returned, having watched myself wrench the wheel toward the spin, as I'm doing now, stop and shift to reverse, as I'm doing now, and back out on the road, as I entered my arms and fingers again, calmly, as though I had never left them, shift to low, and never question the grace that had put me there and alive, 
as I'm doing now. And so there you go, some of Charles Wright's poem, Lonesome Pine Special. I like that last scene, spinning out on Sam's Gap, North Carolina, in the wintertime, icy roads. That was in 1955, and of course, it would be many years before Interstate 26 would go over the mountains into Johnson City, Tennessee, and now you can drive 26. It's one of the most beautiful interstate drives in the whole country. You wind up the mountains, and it's wide and easy, and you can keep your speed up, no problem. But back when 1923 was the only way over the mountain in 1955, it was a winding road, as Charles Wright so well illustrates in his poem, Lonesome Pines Special. I have to confess that poem has influenced the way I write. It gave me permission to collect the landscapes around me. When you think about it, the landscapes around you can be anything from the desk where you're sitting right now or the tree across the street. The landscape can be the parking lot at the local grocery store. How many miles do you travel in a day? How far do you walk? Do you travel inside your imagination as much as outside your imagination? In the same poem, Lonesome Pine Special, Charles Wright does ask this question. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy? In solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy, when you explore the landscapes around you, joy will emerge. And that line from the Charles Wright poem, What Is It Inside Your Imagination?, is the theme for all of the imaginative storm work that I've been talking about for the last six months on this show. I have a poem I'd like to read for you, one I wrote. It's coming out of the book I have emerging from the presses at the end of this year, titled 100 Days. It's a hundred poems I wrote in a hundred days ten years ago after surgery and I was healing and I thought why not write a hundred poems in a hundred days so that's what I did that's why it's called a hundred days this is poem 42 the great American highway during my second cup of tea at Cafe Yellow in downtown Asheville a yellow Penske truck in the loading zone reminded me of travel centers on the Great American Highway, Petro, Flying J, Loves, TA Travel Center, Pilot, and Sap Brothers. Islands of constant motion, these shimmering plazas, lure you in for fuel, M&Ms, the restroom, lottery tickets, Subway sandwiches, McDonald's burgers, Starbucks coffee, motor oil, and Rand McNally maps. Travel centers are America's long-haul pall pass-through shrines where the cashiers forget you seconds after you scan your card or pocket your change from the hundred you broke for gas. You seldom meet anyone you know walking across the parking lot on your way to only you-know-where out on the Great American Highway. You've probably been out on the Great American Highway yourself, so you know what it's like to pull into one of those 
big convenient places like Love's or Pilot or Flying J and gas up, grab your M&Ms and go on your merry way. I'd now like to close our time together out with a song by Big John Cher. I've played this before. It's about traveling around and what you find when you travel around. And one of the reasons I like to play Big John's music is because I love his voice. And if you've heard this piece before, you'll know what I mean. It's titled Nature Boy, Nature Girl. Well, there was a boy, a very special kind of boy. He wandered very far, very far, over land and sea. He was a little shy and sad of but very wise, very wise was he. Then one day, he happened to pass my way. We talked of many things, golden kings. Then he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is to love and be loved in return. a girl a very special kind of girl she wandered very far very far over land and sea she was a little shy and sad of but very wise very
And that was Big John Shearer singing Nature Boy and Nature Girl. And of course, Big John is taking us right up to the top of the hour, which means it's now time for me to say thank you for tuning into Twice Five Miles Radio. Fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WP. WPVMFM. If you would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to go. You can always reach out to me, Nave, at jamesnave.com. And if you'd like to join me any Saturday morning with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, we host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session, salon, conversation. We gather for an hour, uh, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and, and we write with a group of people, usually 20 to 25 folks on a Zoom call. We'd love to have you. You can find all that information and more at imaginativestorm.com. So just remember, whatever it is inside your imagination, whatever that is, will keep surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had in solitude, spontaneously and with great joy. And on that note, hey, thanks for spending the hour with me and with Robert and with Big John Share and all these ideas. I really do appreciate it. And I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.